while we do some of the shuffle, if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 29. As you do that, I want to disseminate some information, get, offer you an opportunity. Uh, Wednesday, as, as you probably well know, what should have been a day with Kansas City in the spotlight, you know, for the Super Bowl victory turned into Kansas City in the spotlight for um, tragic event that took place at the parade in the pep rally down uh, by Union Station. And uh, in response to that, there's an organization in Kansas City called Pastor Serve. They exist to connect churches and ministries together. Um, for ministry purposes, they also exist to serve pastors and congregations as, uh, as they navigate some of the challenges that often come up in the middle of local church life. And um, they began connecting some individuals, some congregations and some ministries in an effort that they're calling The Church Loves Kansas City, which is a long name, but that's what it is. And the goal is to raise some funds that will be used in a few different ways. And so as the situation has sort of evolved over the last five days, initially the goal was to raise, offer people the opportunity to give money specifically from churches in Kansas City and then give that money to cover funeral expenses, medical expenses for those who uh, found themselves victims on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, obviously, if you've been paying attention, there have been some high-profile gifts, uh, large sums of money given to the family of Lisa Lopez who lost her life. Um, and so the designation for that money has shifted a little bit. And so what this group of people is striving to do is to raise funds that can be used in partnership with Children's Mercy Hospital to completely cover the costs of all of the medical expenses for um, the individuals who ended up at Children's Mercy, and then to set up two funds, one that will be used for anyone who on Wednesday afternoon found themselves nearby the um, uh, events that took place there at Union Station, the gun violence that took place there, so that people can receive trauma counseling if they feel like that is something that they need to help process what they experienced on Wednesday afternoon. Then subsequent to that, a second fund is going to be set up that that money could be used for future crisis um, events that take place in the greater Kansas City metro and for anyone who finds themselves the victim of gun violence um, in any form. And so though Wednesday's events made national news, gun violence takes place across the greater Kansas City metro area all the time and a lot of it doesn't make even the local news at all. And so whether it be for the counseling or uh, for victims of gun violence, there's going to be a way that people can apply. There'll be a small group of individuals from these Christian organizations who kind of come together, vet those, and then are able to get funds to those who need it or who are asking for it. Um, just to answer some questions that you might have, the uh, funds will be held by a group called the National Christian Foundation. That is a national organization. You can go and look them up. They exist explicitly to help fundraising efforts and the disseminating of those funds to appropriate places. The grouping of individuals who are leading up this The Church Loves Kansas City initiative, they're not planning to form a 501c3, so there won't be any overhead costs associated with this. So 95%, they estimate, of the funds that are raised 
will go directly to either the medical bills at Children's Mercy or to individuals in the future for either counseling or for other crisis type or gun violence related situations. Um, LCF, along with a number of congregations and ministries across Kansas City, said we would be happy to let our people know about this so that you can give toward it should you feel led. And rather than making you go to an outside website, if you just go to lcfliberty.org, you click on the giving tab in the top upright hand corner, up, upper right hand corner, um, it will take you to our normal giving page. And once you're there, you'll be able to hit a drop down menu and be able to designate the Church Loves Kansas City as where you want to give that money and then we will take care of getting it to the right place so that we don't have to send you to external websites and you have to figure out some other means to do that. If you're interested in giving and being part of that, there's the way that you can do it right from the giving page on our own website. You certainly do not have to, but um, we wanted to let you know of that opportunity for the church kind of broadly in Kansas City to band together both directly related to Wednesday's events, but also going forward as it relates to gun violence. So if you're interested in doing that, um, you can do so on our, our page and we will take care of, of getting the funds to the right place. Um, before we jump into Genesis chapter 29, let's pray. I'm just gonna kind of pray for uh, our city as it relates to this topic and then we'll, we'll get into our passage for the day. God, thank you for uh, the opportunity for us to gather for the, the church to come together in this building and all across Kansas City to sing your praises, to open your word, to fellowship with one another and to band together um, to try to do some good and bring some hope and some light into the brokenness that exists right here in our own city. God, we pray for uh, the family of Lisa Lopez. God, we pray for the individuals and the families who found themselves uh, in hospitals with wounds or wounded family members. God, we pray for those who were present and in that immediate area on Wednesday afternoon experiencing joy turned into terror. God, we pray for even the young men who who's some form of an interpersonal rift led to the violence that took place, God, would you encounter all of those individuals? God, would you meet them with your grace and your comfort and your care? Would they have opportunities to hear the hope of the gospel? God, would you bring transformation into their lives. God, would you use your church, God, to bring actual sort of kingdom good into the brokenness of our world. God, would your spirit inside of us compel us to certainly pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, but also to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us that we might bring realities of your kingdom to bear right here in the place where we live. God, that can look a lot of different ways in a, in a whole host of issues related to a lot of brokenness all across our society. And God, we, we submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would use us to do just that. God, we pray that you would 
work in individuals in this congregation, in churches across this city, across our nation, and around the world. That the hope of the gospel might break into the brokenness and the darkness that exists in our world. God, that you would do that for the the proclamation of Jesus, that you would do that for your glory, that you would do that for the good of people made in your image. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you have Genesis 29 open there in front of you, if you have a Bible, you wanna open up to Genesis chapter 29. We're gonna work with verses one through 30 this morning. And just, just as like a general sort of heads up, starting today through Genesis 29, Genesis 30, 31, Genesis 32, Genesis 33, and a lot of what remains in the book of Genesis. This is gonna feel more like a soap opera than it is like the pages of scripture. What we're about to read today and then continue on in in the weeks ahead sounds more like an episode of Days of Our Lives than it does about something that you would anticipate finding when you open up your Bible for a quiet time one day. Uh, The Bible is, uh, I think, kind to us in that it portrays to us the full reality of human brokenness. Uh, Without that, we would not know the need for a savior. And so there will be moments over the next few weeks where I'm reading something and you're like, did he do that without blushing? The answer is probably no. But we're gonna sort of like soldier our way through this, seek to understand the passage this morning by highlighting some questions that just kind of jump off of the page trying to make some connections back to some things that have taken place in Genesis already, and then really by highlighting some of the irony that takes place in this account as it relates to the life of Jacob, who we've been tracking with over the last few weeks. So if you've got Genesis open there in front of you, I'm gonna start reading in chapter 29, verse one. And as we go here, we're gonna stop along the way to kind of point some things out. So this is Genesis 29, starting in verse one. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well, but a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor, Jacob asked them. They answered, we know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Let's pause there. The first thing you're, you're supposed to sort of see or notice is that apparently it was going to be a group project to roll this large stone away from the opening of the well. And you're supposed to think to yourself, how in the world? does Jacob pull this off by himself? Like he comes to the well, there are three groups of of flocks there, flocks of sheep with their shepherds. Everybody's waiting for the rest of the flocks to arrive so that they can remove the stone and water everyone's animals. And then here comes Rachel. 
and it sort of seems like Jacob pops a can of spinach, hulks himself up a little bit, and then musters all of his strength to shove the stone away from the top of the well so that they can water the sheep. It doesn't seem like it was supposed to work that way, but when he sees Rachel, that's what happens. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. Stop again. This is not like the image that pops into your head here of like your favorite rom-com. Like this isn't Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts or something like that. And here comes Rachel and Jacob musters all of his strength and shoves the stone away from the top of the well. And she's like, oh, Jacob, I love you. And he's like, no, I love you. And they like, there's like this passionate sort of thing. We're going to find out in just a second that when Laban and Jacob meet, they kiss. This is like a cultural thing. These are family members. They're, they're discovering and learning about one another. And that kiss is part of their like very normal sort of cultural introduction or embrace. So before you like run to the love story here, what's taking place at this point is pretty standard uh, ancient stuff in their culture. Verse 12, he told Rachel that he was her father's relative. Seems like he could have led with that instead of with the kiss. Rebecca's son, she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you are my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Pause there. It's also fair to ask at this point, how do these guys keep coming out ahead? Like we're three for three on patriarchs now, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, doing fairly despicable things and seemingly like waltzing out of it in a better position than they came in in. Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister twice and he gets very wealthy as a result. Isaac lies about Rebecca, says that his wife, Rebecca, is his sister and then he gets rich off of that. And now here's Jacob who has swindled his brother, then his father, who's received the blessing and now he gets a wife. It's sort of maddening as you read your way through Genesis that this kind of thing just keeps happening and they keep getting rewarded, it seems like. There's a little scene in Numbers 32 that I think is going to help us understand really the rest of Genesis. In Numbers 32, Moses is leading the Israelites. They're still out in the wilderness. They're camped sort of on the east side of the Jordan River, getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half of the tribe of Manasseh want land on the east side of the Jordan River. They see that it's good uh, for their flocks. And so Moses says, okay, you can have that land, but 
Is it fair to the other tribes to go into Canaan and risk their lives for the land that God has promised while you just stay out here and avoid that? No, of course not. So if you go with us into Canaan, help us clear out the land. Once we've done that, you can come back out here to the east side of the Jordan River and you can have this land for yourselves. And that is what is going to end up happening. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have land outside of Canaan on the other side of the Jordan River. In response to what Moses says, those tribes say, okay, we'll do just as you have commanded. And Moses says in response, but if you don't do this, you will certainly sin against the Lord and be sure that your sin will catch up to you. That's Moses' warning. Be sure that your sin will catch up to you. What we're gonna see in narrative form in beginning in this passage today and then really through the rest of the book of Genesis is sin catching up to Jacob. We're gonna see that we're never better off for having sinned, never. We're never better off for having sinned. In the short run, you might say to yourself, well, there are some times where I sinned and it definitely seemed like I came out ahead. Yeah, sometimes the consequences of your sin catch up to you immediately. Sometimes they don't. You might think in the long run, it seems like you went through seasons where there was a particularly broken or a particularly sinful situation and you came through it relatively scot-free. Yes, sometimes the consequences of our sin catch up to us eventually. But the biblical picture is that in the long arc of eternity, sin will always catch up to humanity when left to themselves. Always. You will not be able to forever outrun the consequences of your sin, whether here in this life or when you stand before the Lord in judgment. You can't run away from it. And so think about it or frame it however you want, long-term, short-term, eternal scope. The biblical principle is that we're never better off for having sinned. We're never better off for having been disobedient to the Lord than if we had been obedient to him. Let's think a little bit harder about what we've seen in Genesis so far. Abraham arrives in Egypt. He's worried that because Sarah is so beautiful, they'll kill him and take her to be, uh, that someone will take her to be their wife. And so he says, say that you're my sister. They end up coming out of that with, we're told, uh, flocks and herds and male and female servants. And as I mentioned before, most agree that Hagar comes into Abraham's household through that interaction, which sets off a lifetime of pain and brokenness surrounding Hagar and Ishmael. So I would ask you this question. As Abraham is loading up Hagar and, you know, 12-year-old Ishmael with enough water and food to sort of like wander out into the wilderness presumably to the place where eventually they will starve or dehydrate to death. Do you think he's thinking to himself, I really came out ahead here. This has all been really good. And it's the same with Isaac. He uses the same script with the Philistines in a place called Gerar. The leader of the Philistines is a man named Abimelech. There's this weird thing that happened in Genesis 26 a few weeks ago when we went through that where 
Isaac keeps digging a well and the Philistines stop it up and then he digs another one and they argue over it and he digs another one and they take that one and then it's just like he's jumping from place to place. He's moving his family around. They're in the middle of a famine. Presumably there's no rain and there's no water, but they keep finding water when they dig these wells only to have the leader of the Philistines say, nope, that well's mine. Or if it's not his, to just plug it up so that they can't drink anything. He wronged that guy. And now his sin is catching up to him. Do you think as he's running with his family for their survival, he's thinking to himself, really glad I did that. This has worked out perfectly for me. I mean, Jacob here, he's gonna spend 20 years in service to a man, Laban, who is very difficult. Jacob and Rebecca obviously had a very close relationship. That was his mother. She packs him up and sends him away. He's never going to see her again. She is dead before he makes it back home. What happens here in Genesis chapter 29 is going to lay the groundwork for what is a very messy, very broken remainder of the book of Genesis, all that plays out within the family of Jacob. And it turns out that even in asking the question, like why do these guys keep coming out ahead? It sort of belies the thing that we think is important, right? Material wealth, possessions, comfort. Like if we were a more communal society, less individualistic, if our idol wasn't like prosperity quite like it is in modern America, we would look at this and say to ourselves, why do these guys keep ruining their lives? This is destroying their family relationships. It's causing all of this turmoil and all of this strife. And yet it seems like when you're in verse 20, everything's going great for Jacob. But then verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, so seven years have passed, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. And when the morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Stop right there. Head scratching question number three. I mean, how dark can it actually be? Like how, how drunk from the feast can you actually be? I mean, that goes without saying, right? It doesn't seem like it's possible for it to be that dark or for you to be that drunk. But if you think backward in Genesis, a similar thing has already happened once. You remember after the Sodom and Gomorrah incident, Lot and his family go running out of Sodom and Gomorrah. They ask if they can stop in this little town because he doesn't think he can make it all the way to the mountains. They stay there for a little while, but they do end up out in the mountains in a cave and Lot's daughters do what? get him really drunk on successive nights because they're worried that they won't be able to find a husband and they sleep with their father. And you're like, how dark is the cave? Like, how strong was the stuff that you drank? This doesn't seem like it should be possible. I don't have any answers to that, but it, you, you can't help but ask the question. Verse 26, Laban answered, It is not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. 
He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. As just a very brief aside, I'm not, I'm making like no, no like hard, harsh comment on people that I've heard say this before, but there are times where like, we're seeking so hard to find someone noble that we would emulate in a passage that I have heard people say oh, how, how like noble it is that Jacob would work 14 years for this woman that he loves. Yeah, I mean, only if like you're fine with the polygamy, you care nothing for Leah in the situation. Like there's nothing noble here. The whole thing is broken and dark, and like I said, it reads more like a soap opera than a passage out of the Bible. And there are these connections, things that should have like sprung to your mind from previous passages in Genesis. A meeting at this well, right? In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant to go find Isaac, a wife. The servant arrives at, his, at a well where he meets Rebekah who gives water to him and waters his camels. And he says, this is how I know that the Lord has made my journey a success. And the interaction that takes place at that well is the means by which Isaac ends up with Rebekah as his wife. Here we are in Genesis 29, Jacob fleeing for his life, eventually rolls into Padan Aram. He's at a well. Rachel comes walking over and the interaction that takes place at the well is the means by which Jacob is going to end up married. It's a very clear connection to Genesis 24. And it all takes place sort of brokered by this man named Laban. In Genesis 24, after meeting Abraham's servant at the well, Rebekah doesn't run to her father Bethuel for whatever reason, it's her brother Laban who becomes the sort of stand-in head of family in that instance, and he's the one who brokers the deal for Rebekah to become Isaac's wife. Now here in Genesis 29, Jacob is dealing with Laban again, this time for one of Laban's daughters. And Jacob's gonna have to work through and deal with Laban in order to become married. As a bonus head-scratcher, yes, Jacob... Uh, is the nephew of Laban. Laban is Jacob's uncle, which means that both Leah and Rachel are Jacob's cousins. Again, I offer no answers, but it's disingenuous to not point these things out as we work through this. The final connection sort of buried inside Genesis 29 is actually a direct link back to Genesis 28. There's a word used in both chapters repeatedly. It's a Hebrew word that's designed or, or put into a narrative account to like attract your attention to something. In English, we would translate it behold or look. The Hebrew word is ine, H-I-N-N-E-H. It shows up four times in Genesis 28. Our modern translations uh, due to sort of our current day language conventions don't include that word look or behold every single time. It, it operates instead with like exclamation points or something like that. So if you want to see this in your text and you've got your phone there in front of you, switch your translation to the King James Version. In Genesis 28, 
this word ine shows up four times and it's like funneling your attention to something specific. So in verse 12, we're told, and he, Jacob, dreamed and behold, a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached into the heavens. And then still in verse 12, and behold, angels of God ascending and descending on it. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. And then verse 15, in the vision as God speaks to Jacob, And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all the places whither thou goest, is how the King James renders that. The thing that Genesis 28 wants to draw your attention to, as we mentioned last week, is this unbelievable kindness and grace of God to show up and to bless this lying, conniving, fugitive Jacob. Behold, a tower, stairway with its top in the heavens. Behold, angels going up and down upon it. Behold, the Lord standing at the top. And then as God speaks, behold, I'm with you and will go with you wherever you go. It's like funneling your attention into the main point. Now in verse 29, the word ine shows up three times. Again, funneling your attention to the thing that's supposed to ultimately sort of stop you in your tracks. Twice, the statement shows up calling attention to God fulfilling his promises. Verse two, and he, Jacob, looked and behold, a well in the field and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, right? God's watched over him on this journey, brought him there safely. Verse six, and he, Jacob, said unto them, the shepherds, is he well? He's asking about Laban. And they said, he is well and behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. So you're reading and now you're supposed to, you were looking at the well and God's provision. Now you're supposed to look at Rachel because God said Jacob would have descendants. So, aha, here's the means by which he's going to have these descendants. And then verse 25, the third one. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah you are supposed to be like shocked and mortified by that turn of events. The CSB, which we preach from on Sunday mornings, says when the morning came, there was Leah. And it, and it gives you an exclamation point, like it's trying. When the morning came, there was Leah. Wah! Like, it's Leah, not Rachel. Like, but the behold, it's that, Hebrew word that's channeling your attention to like this moment is the thing that I'm supposed to really be paying attention to, that he would wake up and it's not Rachel, it's Leah. You're supposed to be shocked by it. It's like the moment the emperor strikes back or the empire strikes back when Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. And Luke like staggers backward on the tower, right? And he's like, ah, like everyone in the theater, their face melts because how could this be? It's like the end of The Sixth Sense. I'm gonna ruin a string of movies here for you to really drive my point home. It's like at the end of The Sixth Sense when Bruce Willis realizes that he's dead. He's been dead the entire time. And he's having that, this moment where he's sitting in a room watching his wife and he realizes, I'm no longer here. It's like in the movie Coco. When Miguel realizes or you you get the reveal that Hector is his great-grandfather and that Hector actually is the one who wrote all of De La Cruz's songs, right? It's like that moment. Behold, there was Leah. 
supposed to grab your attention because suddenly there's this huge issue in the life of Jacob and everything has caught up to him. He cannot outrun it any longer. There's all this like irony layered in to the account. We were told right from before Jacob and Esau were born that Esau the older is going to serve Jacob the younger and now here you arrive and you've got Jacob serving this man named Laban. Well, that's not how I thought that was supposed to go. There's the reversal of the birth order in the Jacob and Esau account. The older is going to serve the younger, like it's going to be flipped. And then you see Jacob and Rebecca take that into their own hands to do the bowl of stew thing with the birthright and then dress up like Esau to get dad's blessing. What do we have here now? Behold, it was Leah. And Laban says, we don't give away the younger before the older around here. And now that birth order is like forced upon Jacob. And all of that takes place inside the irony of ironies, which is that the one who has deceived his way to wealth and happiness and prosperity gets deceived. I mean, just imagine, you were told in the passage that Laban and Jacob meet one another and Jacob tells him everything that has happened. Jacob's like, and so then my brother came in hungry from hunting. And I asked him if he would sell me his birthright for some stew. And my brother was like, I'm starving. What does a little bit of stew matter? So I got the birthright. And then a little bit later, when as dad was getting old and he's about to pass away, my mom, your sister, we teamed up in order to trick my dad into giving me the blessing. And so he blessed me instead of Esau. And Laban's like, oh yeah, we're gonna get along. And the way that it all plays out is supposed to be this like moment where Jacob comes out and he's like, how could you do this to me? We agreed that I was working for the younger and you, you sent Leah in, you scoundrel. How could you deceive me like that? And it's supposed to be this moment where he would like look into the mirror, kind of like David and Nathan after the whole Bathsheba incident and Nathan shows up and he tells David this parable about a, a poor man with one sheep and a, a, a rich ruler who's got a bunch of sheep and wants to throw a feast and he goes to the poor guy and he says, hey, give me your one sheep so I can slaughter it for the feast. And David's like, how could he do that? And Nathan says, you are that man. That's the moment for Jacob. You deceived me. Oh, I am that man. Genesis is nothing but realistic in that it does not paper over the brokenness of life here in this world. It does not paper over the brokenness that exists in its earliest figures. If you wanted to make Christianity look really good and really appealing, you would feel the, fill the pages of scripture with like paragons of virtue and morality. That is not what you have. Instead, the Bible is very honest about the human condition allowing the figures that fill the pages of scripture not to set this example that the rest of us couldn't possibly measure up to, but instead to provide an illustration that we can all completely relate to. Sure, the issues and the cultures are different here, but the root matters are the same. Look, to my knowledge, no one in this congregation has had their father-in-law dupe them into taking the wrong sister as a spouse. To my knowledge, no one in this congregation has had their husband try to pass them off as their sister. 
to my knowledge, no one in this congregation has tried to build a tower into heaven or tried to have a child via a household servant or been tricked by their daughters into sleeping with them. But the root causes, now that's a little different. We all know the pull of self-preservation. The, the, the desire to do what we must to protect ourselves. We all know the temptation to make a name for ourselves. Parents, you know the longing that exists inside of you and the links to which you would go to care for your children and provide for them. We all know the jealous tumult that swirls inside of us when someone has something that we want. We've all likely had moments where we've been take, tempted to take advantage of someone for our own gain. And if you go all the way back to the garden, we all know the feeling of wanting to be like God in ways that we're not intended to be. And yet, the continual warning of Scripture in both direct command and narrative description is that you are never better off for having sinned. Never. And it, it gets a little bit tricky here in this portion of the Old Testament. Because even though the root causes are the same, the circumstances and the situations are, are very different, there's also the reality that this takes place in a different era of redemptive history. This is way before the epistles of the New Testament. It's way before the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's way before the Old Testament prophets. It's, it's before the wisdom literature of like the Psalms and the Proverbs having been written down. It's even before the law is given at Mount Sinai. And so it's fair to ask the question, well, what did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob know as it relates to right and wrong? Sin and not sin? That's a great question. Scholars debate that. What we do know for sure is that each of them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're supposed to walk in faith based on the promises that God has made to them. In fact, that's what sends Jacob onto this journey. Chapter 29, verse 1 is an idiom that would not make sense to us if it had just been transliterated. The CSB says Jacob resumed his journey. The idiom in Hebrew would say something like, Jacob's feet were lifted, or his feet became light, which would be that he has this dream or this vision, the Lord makes these promises to him, and then he wakes up, and it's like he's like skipping off on the rest of his journey. There's like joy in what he's doing. He's got these incredible promises, and he is jogging now to Padan Aram in response to what God has promised him. Those promises, that's supposed to be the controlling reality in his life. Live in faith of those promises, in faith of the God who made them, and allow that faith to dictate who you are and what you do. And then he gets to Haran, and this is the mess he finds himself in, and it's only getting weirder and more dark as we go forward. Our position in redemption history means that we not only have God's promises, but we have far more than those promises to guide us. So how is it that we're supposed to live and navigate life in our broken world? How is it that as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to follow Jesus in all of the varied brokenness and darkness and difficulty and sin that exists around us? I'll tee up the easy one for you first. We obey scriptures direct commands. Right, like you find yourself in a situation, you just ask yourself, does scripture anywhere speak directly to this situation? And if the answer is yes, that's what, you, that's what you're supposed to do. 
So like, should you lie to your boss? No. Should you steal from that store? No. Should you gossip about that person? No. Scripture's clear on that. This is like the Google Maps version of following Jesus. Like it gives you direct, explicit instructions and all you've got to do is follow them. We want all of life to be that easy. We want for this book to give us the Google Maps version of obedience and faithfulness to every single one of life's varied situations in a modern, complex, broken world. Unfortunately, that's not the case. This gives you everything that you need for life and godliness, we're told. And yet it doesn't spell out exactly what you're supposed to do in every situation that you will encounter in 2024. Okay, so then... What else do we do? Well, we apply scripture's time-tested wisdom. Everything you need for life and godliness, some of it expelled out, spelled out in direct commands, some of it coming through wisdom. Does scripture shed light on how to wisely handle this situation? And if so, then we ought to trust that ancient wisdom over our own ingenuity. There's a direct example of this from the book of Genesis. When Isaac showed up in Gerar with Rebekah, his wife, and he's worried that someone will kill him and take her to be their wife, he should have thought, okay, I could do the thing my dad did. Say that she's my sister. Look at the way that ended up for dad. Maybe that's not the wisest course of action. I should do something else. Wisdom. We so, so often want something like new. We want to show up to church, to the sermon, and get five new, fresh tips for handling fill-in-the-blank situation in life. What we need, more often than not, is a reminder of something ancient and well-worn. Scripture gives us that wisdom. Number three, we emulate Scripture's supreme model, Jesus. Everything you need for life and godliness Commands, wisdom, the model of Jesus. Okay, so does the life of Jesus give me a posture, a temperament, or an attitude to apply to this current situation? Rather than like the Google Maps, this would be like getting a compass. It's like an orientation. How, how do I think about this particular set of circumstances or this particular situation? What's the attitude or the tone that I should adopt here? We have to remind ourselves that to be a follower of Jesus is to live a life that's not only been saved by the work of Jesus, but also to be transformed into the image of Jesus, which is not just in our actions, but also in our attitudes and our postures. And so let me just, a direct example, we're in, a, in an election year. Okay, does this book give me direct commands about exactly who I should vote for exactly how I should handle modern political engagement in America in 2024 with a very stratified two-party political system? No. It does give us some commands that we can take directly into that arena. It does give us some wisdom that we can take directly into that arena. But maybe the thing it gives us most is a tone, a posture, an attitude, a disposition so that when you hop on social media, what should I sound like in my Facebook post? How should I have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who disagrees with me? That's more like the compass of Jesus's model. How do we emulate him 
in all of our situations. Number four, we walk in light of Scripture's eternal promises. Our conduct in this world ought to be framed by what Scripture promises us. This place is not our home. Brokenness will not last forever. The deepest and most important realities in life are not what society says that they are. And so we take that and we bring that into life. And it helps us see that like, I don't need to adopt the idolatries of the world around me. Instead, I can hold Christ up as most supreme and allow my obedience to be to him rather than to my flesh's desires for something here in this world. I don't have to grasp after everything I can wring out of my life. This also allows us to speak hope and life and light into the brokenness that's around us. If we understand the promises of God and where he's taking everything, it allows us to look at the brokenness that exists and the darkness that exists in our world and speak hope into that because we understand the promises that God has made to us in his word. Last, we submit to scripture's great helper. That's the Holy Spirit. You have not been left alone to do all of this for yourself. Obey scripture perfectly. Apply wisdom in every situation. Emulate the posture and the model of Jesus. Walk in light of those eternal promises. It seems impossible to obey scripture's commands when my flesh does not want to. Yeah, it is impossible. But it's not you who must obey all of it by yourself because Christ is in you. You've got help. It seems impossible to apply wisdom when my own foolish schemes scream more loudly in my heart and my mind. Yeah, it is. But it's not you who has to figure out all the applications of that wisdom on your own because, brother or sister, Christ is in you. It seems impossible to emulate the model of Jesus when I'm not Jesus. Yes, it is. But it's not you who has to muster up that willpower all on your own. Christ is in you. It seems impossible to live now according to what we've been promised. And at times, it is. But you don't have to navigate that alone because Christ is in you. We can submit to his presence inside of us. Rely upon the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. I'll end here. The thing that is uniquely different about followers of Jesus as it relates to morality in the world or how it is that we navigate our life is that we cling to the gospel's gracious gift. That's the difference. We just cling to the gift of Jesus Christ. Look, if you do all of this perfectly, obey the commands, apply the wisdom, follow the model of Jesus, walk in light of the eternal promises, submit to the great helper, but you don't have Christ, what do you have? The same tired, confused, anxious way of life as the world around us. But the gift of the gospel is that you don't have to summon up perfection as a means of self-salvation. The Bible calls you to faith in Jesus as a means of receiving salvation. And then it's the gospel that reworks all of this inside of you so that you would want to obey. So that you would have an interest in the wisdom of Scripture. So that you would even care about what Jesus does. So that you would know and cherish the promises of God. That's the work of the gospel inside the follower of Jesus. Even if you did all of that stuff perfectly, but you did not have Christ, your sin would still catch up to you. 
If you're going to pass out communion, will you come grab these and start these trays around, around the room? I mentioned last week, the main point of last week's sermon was that the gospel is good news for all who encounter it. And, and we applied that to different groupings of people. That the gospel is good news to those who are curious about Christianity, antagonistic toward Christianity, apathetic about Christianity. It's good news to those who find themselves utterly desperate for Christianity to be true. It's good news for those who are prideful and kind of have like wandered from the truth of the gospel. It's good news to those of us who arrive here and we're grateful for the truth of the gospel. When we talk about navigating life in a broken world, follower of Jesus, the gospel is still good news there. Like you have Christ inside of you thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So if you've, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take a little two stack of cups, uh, wafer on the bottom, juice on the top. And here's, here's how we're gonna do the next few minutes. The band is gonna start to play and I'm gonna give everyone a little bit of time and you can take this when you're ready. And I would encourage you, the Bible tells us to give uh, honest reflection before we come and take this meal. So if, if there's sin that you need to repent for, I would invite you to do that in this time. But let's, let's be really clear what your repentance is. It's not, oh God, I can't believe I did that. I'll try harder next time. That's not the gospel. That's a heavy yoke that you can't bear. Repentance is, God, this is my sin. This is my brokenness. And my forgiveness is not bound up in my ability to not sin like that again next time. My forgiveness is bound up in the blood of Christ spilled for me, the body of Christ given for me. That's where my forgiveness is. And that is also where my desire to repent and change comes from. So you, you might need to do a little repenting and then reflect on these elements and then take those. You might need to do a little bit of repenting for your own sort of like self-salvation attempts that you've allowed yourself to believe that you can save yourself if you just obey well enough, model Jesus well enough, apply the wisdom well enough. And you know what? Maybe I don't actually need this. You need, you need to repent of that attitude as well and allow these elements to guide you into that. You may need to just spend a little bit of time in that humble gratitude for the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, or you might need to spend a little time just praying that the Holy Spirit would move inside you in such a way that the gospel reorders who you are so that you long to obey, to live righteously and in wisdom, to emulate the model of Jesus, and that he would empower that transformation inside of you. So I'm gonna allow you some time and some space to do that. When, when you've taken your elements and you're ready, uh, you can feel free to stand up if you're able to or to just enter into worship uh, with the band as, as they lead us through the next couple songs. But take some time in reflection before the Lord. Take this when you're ready and then we can enter into song together.